0: our podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Life Fantastic Podcast, the podcast where people with developmental disabilities talk about all things disability here on straight independent radio. I'm your host, the Idea Dynamo, Samantha Pierce. This podcast is sponsored by NeurodiversityConsulting.org and Sanchia.org. Check us out on the web to find out all the great things we do with people with disabilities. I'm joined today as always by my co-hosts, Liza Citron, disabled autistic self-advocate and future special education teacher. Scott Davis, disabled writer, speaker and entrepreneur and Dr. Jeremy Pierce, philosopher, autism parent and my husband. Today we are tackling the topic of understanding the difference between mental illness and developmental disability because some people don't seem to understand what the difference is. And we're gonna start off with defining terms. It's always important when you're having a conversation to know what you're talking about and to have a common language. So we'll start with mental illness. And this definition is from the American Psychiatric Association. And it defines mental illness as mental illnesses as health conditions involving changes in emotion, thinking, or behavior, or a combination of these. Mental illnesses are associated with distress and or problems functioning in social, work, or family activities. So that's the definition of mental illness from the American Psychiatric Association. The definition of developmental disabilities from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is thus, developmental disabilities are a group of conditions due to an impairment in physical learning, language or behavior areas. These conditions begin during the developmental period, that's between birth and the age of 18, may impact day-to-day functioning and usually last throughout a person's lifespan. There's also a a sub-definition of neurodevelopmental disabilities or disorders, but that fairly well overlaps with what developmental disabilities are. So now that we've established the terms that we're using, what do you find distinctive, the the main difference between mental illnesses and developmental disabilities? Liza, I'll start with you.
1: First of all, there is overlap. There is, but I have more experience, specifically, with neurodevelopmental disability than I do with developmental disability uh, in general. So, if I'm if I'm if I'm able to speak to that,
0: well, here's the thing: when I when I looked up the 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 definition and the differences of um, neurodevelopmental disability it's pretty similar to the definition of developmental disability. And when you look at a list of what's considered neurodevelopmental disabilities, included in this list are all the things that are developmental disabilities. It may be that the term neurodevelopmental disability is used because there's a recognition um, as we learn more about neurology and how the brain works that developmental disabilities are primarily housed in the brain. For me, the the term developmental disability and neurodevelopmental disability are interchangeable. Those terms are interchangeable because I understand that a developmental disability, most of what we see and notice starts in the brain and travels out from there.
1: Yeah, okay. One of the biggest things that stands out to me is that and this isn't exclusive in that mental illnesses cannot do this, but developmental disability must have its onset between the ages of birth and age 18. Yes. It doesn't mean that you have to be diagnosed by then, as Sam proves and yes. as I guess I don't prove because I was diagnosed early, but I certainly never, you know, understood that. The onset is really the the defining factor there, one of the things. Mental illness is such a broad term that I think there is a reason why people kind of confuse the two, because on the surface they do look similar, and why exactly do we categorize things into one or the other? The categorization, I don't quite know why those categories are as they are and why something's in one, not the other. But what I do know is that the main differentiator is age of onset. And I also know that in terms of the way that people are treated, developmentally disabled people are much more likely to be infantilized because they are thought of as functioning at a particular age level. Whereas with mental illnesses, those are stigmatized in a different way oftentimes Mm. that often seems to tie down in our culture to a moral failing within the person.
0: Yes, I was was (laughs) thinking exactly that. Mental illnesses are often stigmatized as a moral failing, like someone did something wrong and that's why they're mentally ill or someone is they're just they don't have good character so that's why they're mentally ill and of course and we both getting, know that's not the case
1: and of course this is getting in more into the sociological side of things uh, rather than you know what the concrete differences are we're getting into how the world treats it regardless of what those differences may be but that's still relevant because the interplay between those is massive the Developmentally disabled people are more likely to have to be mentally ill, not just because if there's some intrinsic link. No, it's we're more likely to deal with depression, anxiety, all of those things, maybe because of some link, but also because of the way the world treats us, as is true of most marginalized communities. So, regardless of whether there is some physical difference there. There is a link between the two in the sociological realm in, in in the way society treats people.
0: Thank you for sharing that Liza. Now Jeremy, what do you see as as the distinctives, the distinctive differences between mental illness and developmental disability?
2: It seems to me that with at least with DSM four, and beyond i i don't we don't have a copy of three and uh it didn't occur to me to call my mother who does <laughs> to get her to to, to tell me <laughs> what it says why uh, does your mother have a copy of dsm3 she worked in the mental health field for years oh and um she bought it while she while she oh. that was her occupation oh, so good
1: thing, a good thing i asked for audience members who don't know i guess
2: okay. <laughs> So, uh, but at least with four, which is the oldest version that we have in our home, uh, the, if you look at the the way it classifies, it starts with the first set of disorders, or disorders usually first diagnosed in infancy, childhood, or adolescence. That's how it puts it. It doesn't say developmental disorders. It says disorders first diagnosed in that, and then it goes to delirium, dementia, amnesia. And mental disorders due to general medical conditions, substance related, schizophrenia, and other psychotic disorders, and so on, uh, mood disorders, anxiety disorders, and, so, and there's a long list. But it, it seems to me that what it's doing is it's moving away from having a term that has to do with developmental and moving toward when it's typically first diagnosed, uh, which would fit with Liza's own uh, way of trying to capture what the difference is there. But it it also seems to me that what they're trying to do here is put them all under the same general heading, which is mental disorders. And that's their big term. And then there are the ones that are diagnosed within earlier ages or typically diagnosed within earlier ages. And then there are all the other ones that are in their own categories. It seems to me that that's how DSM-IV is organizing it, which makes me think they don't they don't want to continue to think of developmental disabilities under that term as a category. I'm not entirely sure why that is. But yeah, me it seems either. like that's a conscious. I, I have
0: a I have a copy of DSM5 here on my desk, and there are different categories, neurodevelopmental disorders. That's its own category. That's where you would typically find the developmental disabilities.
2: Do they still have disorders usually first diagnosed in infancy, childhood, or adolescence as the first category?
0: I haven't gotten that far yet.
1: <laughs> well, it would seem, it would seem as though, like I said, mental illness seems to be a very, very broad category. It would seem as though, and I'm not sure about the DSM3 either. I'm sure we can look that up and put it in the description for those that want to read that and, and know what the difference is there if there is one. But it seems as though they are making mental illness this broad category. Mental and disorder. It, yeah, mental yeah. disorder. I yeah. apologize. Mental that's, disorder. That's the part, term they like. Okay. Mental disorder, this broad category, and putting all these things hanging off of it, including developmental disability, which includes autism. So.
2: Right. That's, yeah, that's what it seems to me they're doing more. Yeah. And four.
1: I wonder so, why though. I don't
2: have a I don't have a handle on that.
0: Yeah. The neurodevelopmental disorders in DSM 5, that is separate from what we would typically recognize as mental illnesses. And disclaimer about the DSM, it is just as much a, a political or social document as it is a medical document. Yep. So Take these divisions with a grain of salt, take what it says with a grain of salt because it was developed by consensus,
1: okay? Well, we also know we also know that there were some major changes made from the DSM. I don't think it was four to three to four, I think it was four to five where, and I'm sure this isn't the only deletion, but the Asperger's syndrome got taken yeah. away and replaced so- with other categories such as uh, social pragmatic disorder,
2: and the, there are two major categories that had subcategories in four, that five removed all the subcategories. One of them was autism spectrum disorder. And the other one was um, schizophrenia. And those both two, under
1: both both seemingly under the mental disorders field. So
2: <laughs> well, they're under everything in the DSM is mental disorder. Fair. So both both one but but one of them is under the developmental category as you were defining it earlier. And the other one is under the mental illness category as you were defining it earlier. Hmm. So
0: So that schizophrenia
2: is not a developmental disorder. That's something that's late later onset. Mm
0: Yeah. So Scott, I want to talk to you. And what do you see as the, you know, now that we've come back from the DSM rabbit hole, what do you see as the distinctives the, the differences between a developmental disability and a mental illness. Yes,
3: one of the uh, items in my research mentioned that with uh, developmental disorders, it's the person uh, doesn't have the ability to really understand thoughts as well. And then with a mental illness, it doesn't affect the cognitive ability they can perceive and, and do thinking because that's the problem with some of the developmental disabilities, such as autism and other things, is some some people are not able to understand thoughts. Hmm. And, and also that on the developmental disability side, it, the research mentioned they don't hear voices or have hallucinations. So it's, those are just, when I was looking at, trying to so, see the difference.
1: However, those symptoms of of mental illness or mental disorder as the DSM prefers to call it, that you're stating there are not true of all mental illnesses. I think they're taking something like schizophrenia as a representation. And I would also have to argue about the cognitive capacity uh, argument there, because that's a common link that people make. And I'm not sure that it's entirely untrue, but that would seem, I didn't read the article, but that would seem to link developmental disability to intellectual disability, which is not always the case and is a pervasive idea that
0: and best
1: best counseling can become problematic.
3: Yeah. I got it from from a a program, best counseling degrees, and, and they were just that was just some uh it says like in contrast, mental illness doesn't directly impact cognitive abilities, but can change an individuals' perceptions and thought processes. It's just a perspective.
1: Yes.
0: And I think I think Liza and Scott, you both pull out something that I I I've noticed um, during all my years of, of researching what how the brain works and what goes on in the brain in that when we're talking about developmental disabilities, the popular assumption is it means you're stupid. When we're talking about mental illness, the popular assumption is that you are immoral. Mm -hmm. And both of those are wrong (laughs) and not a true reflection of what a developmental disability is or a mental illness is. And my next question is, where do you see the overlap between mental illness and developmental disability. Because clearly both of these things happen in the brain and both of them involve similar brain structures, similar neurotransmitters, similar neurocircuitry. So where are you seeing the overlap?
2: I I don't, I mean, I think think the idea seeing what's different as being age-related really shows that if that's really the difference between them, then there, there shouldn't necessarily be any other differences. If that's really what distinguishes between them, then you could theoretically have any developmental disability, uh, any, any of the things that we're calling mental illnesses, theoretically, could happen at a younger age, and then it would be a developmental disability. And anything that would be a, a developmental disability if it happened later on, it would be a mental illness of some sort right if that's how we're going to distinguish between the two then it doesn't seem like there's any difference in functioning it's just a difference in when it happens and i mean in fact there are conditions that get names assigned to them because of when they're diagnosed or when they're when they're when they're uh, when they happen aphasia does not happen to young children typically it happens to adults when they have some kind of brain damage from a stroke or from um
0: Traumatic
2: brain injury. Uh, brain injury or something like that, Or right? migraines. <laughs> or,
0: yes.
1: Yeah,
2: so there are things that can cause aphasia, which for those who are not familiar with aphasia, it's when uh, you try to say something but the wrong words come out or it sounds garbled and, and it doesn't sound like words at all, it doesn't sound like language, but the person thinks they're saying something and to them it sounds, it's, it, it, they hear it coming out of their mouth sounding like language. <sighs> So, um, but there is a very similar condition that sometimes occurs with developmental disabilities, um, including autism. Uh, One of our sons was diagnosed with it called uh, either apraxia or uh, dyspraxia when it has to do with more than language.
0: It's dyspraxia of speech.
2: Of speech. Yeah, I guess of speech. So narrowly of speech or more of other things as well. So when, when the attempt to do something that doesn't succeed, I guess. And and uh, you you're, you initiate the attempt to try to to try to say the words, but it doesn't come out quite right. Or sometimes they call it yeah. Sometimes they call it apraxia, sometimes sometimes call it dyspraxia. And uh, how is it different from aphasia? It isn't. It's just when it ha- when it when what age of onset it has. If age. it happens developmentally, as in those abilities that don't develop to begin with, they'll call it one thing. But if it happens after you have already had the ability and you've now lost it, or or only at some times have it, then they'll call it a different term.
0: We're talking about that difference between aphasia and dyspraxia of speech. And what's the the clear distinctive about aphasia is that it results from some sort of brain damage at, at some later time. Now, with dyspraxia, we're not, no, we're not sure what causes it, but we are sure that as a child grows and develops, we realize, oh, wait a minute, this kid isn't using words the way that we expect for this kid, for, for their age. And that continues on throughout their lifespan. So those are the main differences between aphasia and dyspraxia. One is there's a clear event uh, some some traumatic injury that um, impacts speech and the other one we're not sure what impacted the speech but we do know that it's been impacted. Now my my next question because we've touched on this a little bit is about the stigma attached to mental illness and developmental disability because we know people you know people we human beings we're great at looking for reasons to uh, distinguish between one group and another and lots of we're, we're great at also looking for reasons why the group that we're in is better than all of the other groups. So what are some of the I've already mentioned that um, you know in some ways when people think about the developmental disability they think that means you're stupid and when they think about mental illness they think that means you're immoral. What are some of the other stigmas attached to developmental disability, and mental illness?
2: I think it's definitely more complicated than that, because it depends on the condition. Some of them, I mean, will we think of mental illnesses not as being um, immoral necessarily in some cases, but being crazy, right? And so what do we mean by crazy? Well, if crazy just means you have a mental illness, then I guess it's true, but it has all these connotations to it, right? And it, did, uh, it did
1: used to mean that. It's just yeah. taken on, as with a lot of these terms that were used as medical terms, but then took on connotations. Again, stigmatization of these things and use of medical term.
2: So, I mean, I mean, you'll have people who have a mental illness who will say, "I'm literally crazy," right? But, but what what do we mean when we say someone is crazy? We mean that they're out of control in a way that. Um, they're going to cause harm and that they're going to do immoral things and maybe they won't be responsible for them but at least they're going to do them right and now sometimes that's true but it's not the general truth about people with mental illnesses that that's correct right <laughs> they they the um they, there are certainly cases where people have enough going on in their neurology that they might be a harm to themselves, they might be a harm to other people and so on. But when we think of the word crazy, I think what we're often thinking is uh, the person who's going to engage in a mass shooting or the person who's going to uh, burn their house down and smile about it and that kind of thing. Whereas the vast majority of people with mental illnesses are nothing close to that, and most of them are not really harmful to themselves or to other people except in very minor ways. It might impact their well being in certain ways it might impact the well being of those around them in certain ways but uh, right so i when I hear um, technical uh specific terms when I hear uh, the the medical terminology say uh, I, I don't get those sense, senses of, of when I hear someone saying so-and-so is crazy, right? So there certainly is a, uh, a way to talk about it, I guess, that as something that is, we had our person-first episode a few episodes ago. I think it's probably more reasonable to think person-first language with a mental illness makes yes. sense. Because a mental illness is something that happens to someone, uh, in in a way that seems a little different than some kind of developmental condition, where that's always been true of them. So, uh, I, I guess when we're when we're thinking of a condition like bipolar disorder, or uh, a personality disorder, perhaps, or something like that, it's something that happens to someone. It does affect what they're like. It affects how they think of themselves, identity-wise, just as something like autism does. So some of the same issues are gonna come up there, but when you talk about it to people who are less familiar with it, and you say that someone has, uh, I don't know, um, what's the one, something, uh, oppositional defiance disorder or something like that, that, that sounds like they are just defiant, right? Some of the actual terminology that's used doesn't really send the message of what it's really like. And it, the fact that people don't understand these disorders at all is, is, is uh, I mean, people think schizophrenia is multiple personalities for, for some reason. I don't know how they ever got that notion. But dissociative disorder is the, is the term now for what used to be called multiple personality disorder. And it's a totally different condition. It has nothing to do with schizophrenia. People will use the word schizophrenic to say that you keep changing your mind on something in a sort of loose metaphorical way, right? It's not even the right condition. Nope. And uh, what, what schizophrenia really is about, and it's not even really about hearing voices uh, or anything like that, that could happen with it. It's one of the things that could happen with it. But what schizophrenia is really about is a, uh, a disconnect with reality in some way. There, there's a world outside of you and your understanding of it and perception of it mm-hmm. is completely different from what's really out there.
0: Yeah, That's- it's a it's a disorder of perception and yes. a, a disorder of kind of where you fit in what you're perceiving. Yes, and,
2: and so the, I the mean thing, you might-
0: the thing about mental illnesses is, is that now we as we learn more about genetics and we learn more about medical neuroscience, there's an understanding now that there is a genetic predisposition towards. Mental illness, uh, things like anxiety, depression, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, there's genetic predisposition to that. Now, that doesn't mean that you are absolutely destined to, to experience that, but it means that you're, it's more likely to happen, particularly if you have a collection of the right stressors in your life to flip that switch. Developmental disability doesn't really work that way, does it? You can have a, there there are certain genetic variants that we've recognized can result in developmental disability. There's some outright um, like Down syndrome. That's developmental disability. That's caused by an extra chromosome. We know what that is. It's totally genetic. With developmental disabilities, we don't always know where it comes from, but we can't really say that there's, it's something that you, you have a genetic predisposition. And if you have the right um, stressors in your life, then you develop this developmental disability, which I think is one of the
2: key differences between the two. Well, it, I think the difference, though, is in, is in time period. It's not that that isn't what's going on. There are certainly genetic uh, links with autism and, and other conditions. It's just that what triggers them, whatever it is that triggers them, must be really early in development. It's, it's, it's not something that happens after birth mm-hmm. at all. In most of these cases, there might be a few unusual cases where it, where something triggers a condition, something like autism, to happen after birth there There does seem to be some evidence that that can happen, but in most cases they 've documented that there 's brain differences way early yeah in in development, but you might find identical twins where one has autism and one doesn 't, mm-hmm. and that means it 's not purely genetic on the level of dna mm-hmm. but something else is going on now maybe it's rna and and uh, uh rna second, so, second uh,
0: messenger systems where the 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 cells are having that conversation about how to regulate themselves and and that conversation's a little bit wonky
1: and that's also where we get into the whole thing of epigenetics which mm-hmm. right. essentially is the active this is oversimplifying it but it's essentially the activation of genes based on environmental factors.
0: Yes, that that's actually right. exactly it. It's yes. epigenetics is what happens when your DNA interacts with your environment. The, our DNA is responsive to, to factors in our environment. Now, Scott, you have been real quiet yeah. over there, and you are somewhat you you have a, d- a developmental disability, an obvious developmental disability. What have what has been what has your experience of stigma towards people with developmental disabilities? What's that been like?
3: Thank you. In terms of stigma, when I was when I was growing up, and people might see me passing by on the road and see that I'm walking strangely or not quite oriented the way others are, they'll they'll yell out the word retard or something. Not a lot, or or they'll they'll tease me and they used to toss my books around or get them wet or, or, or take them away for a while. That's the main stigma. And it really, what, I mean, it, during class they were okay. It was just sometimes what they said behind my back and I'm glad I wasn't part of social media back then. I don't know how I would have survived social media in the 21st yeah, century. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah.
3: But obviously, and then we're probably going to tie into several, Programs, there's advocacy groups. I saw several out there, but but there are different groups that can help advocate for people, whether it's the Intellectual Disability Rights Service, which helps with promoting rights and advocacy and community legal services, that's one of them. There's different supports that are out there for people. But to get back to the question, it, it's 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 really an individualized experience because if you're looking at developmental disabilities,
2: mm-hmm.
3: it just like autism, which it, this all encompasses, we're in a spectrum. There are different, and the way I mentioned about how we process affects and I can agree with that, how it affects the processing of the brain, whether it's behavior and intellect or making those choices, the brain we were talking about is affected in this whole process,
1: yeah so essentially, the stigma was that the stigma was that that developmentally disabled people are less than and can be the targets of things you wouldn't do to able people. The reaction to that stigma then I suppose was everything that you said about them wetting your books or or yelling slurs at you, that sort of thing, based on the stigma of seeing disabled people as lesser, and specifically developmentally disabled people in this case. And I would say, I agree with you, it is highly individualized. The stigma itself, however, is, has to be generalized, because stigma is something societal regarding a particular group. The
0: reaction is
1: highly varied.
0: Think about what it took for the American with Disabilities Act to come about. Yes. And Liza, you and I were just in a conference about that today. And I wasn't able to attend for all of it, but yeah. And it's. It's mind-boggling the things that are still done to people with disabilities, particularly people with developmental disabilities, despite having the protection of the Americans with with disabilities. Yep. Oh, you want to break things. You want to flip a table. But the fact that it took that that legislation and it wasn't until the 1990s as a teenager in high school in the 1990s that's what it took for people with disabilities to have access to education to have access to jobs to have access to housing that's a pretty big stigma right there that society didn't think that we deserved those things and yep. that it took special leg- legislation to get it now, the, the, with, with the, mental uh, illness, people were sh- a lot of people were shuffled off into institutions where they were yep. abused. By the way, people with disabilities were also shuffled into institutions yep. where they were abused.
1: Especially including, especially including developmentally disabled people, because there was society often labeled us as, as mentally ill, even though the medical professionals knew better or intellectually disabled, all of whom ended up uh, institutionalized in, in, yeah. in greater proportions.
0: And, be, and, and being intellectually disabled does not mean that it's okay to abuse to abuse no. people. Like, that's, that's not how that, well, it was how that works. In a lot of cases, it still is how it works, but yep. it's not okay. <laughs> that's where the moral failing lies, folks. Not in having a mental illness or a disability, it lies in not treating people appropriately.
1: Yep. It doesn't lie in us. It lies in the way society treats us essentially.
0: Yes. So uh where did I go? We got, we got all of, we got all off topic. Oh, here it is. What are the implications? And I think y'all know where this is going. What are the implications for people who we experience both a mental illness and a developmental disability?
3: The implications I would say are, pro- wouldn't you say they're, they're programs. That's, the next step whenever I've done uh, research uh, from that have been presented at conferences, they're always talking about uh, programs. There are two out there in my research and and they're similar type programs. In Houston, there's an ADAPT program from the Mental Health and uh, Mental Retardation Authority. And they're talking about people learning, working and living together in a program. Even in North Syracuse, I noticed that there is in EFR program, which is Exceptional Family Resources, they've been around for 40 years since 1971, and they want people to be able to navigate the system. Mm-hmm. I call it a concierge approach, and it helps with the social emotional learning aspects. There's more information that, that's out there on the web, but it it just, they have a staff of 400 and and that they help people of what we're we're trying to do. They give support and advocacy. So that's just uh, two programs out there that both in Texas and in Syracuse that, and there's multiple programs throughout the world that address these issues.
0: Liza, how about you? What do you see as some of the implications when people experience a developmental disability and a mental illness?
1: Well first of all, you're stigmatized from two different sides in two different ways and those and marginalized in those ways as well and those multiple marginalizations. Again, I'm gonna talk about intersectionality because I always do.
0: It's but a thing. Yes, it's a real thing.
1: <laughs> you're dealing with a mental disorder as well as a developmental disability society treats you differently based on those alone. And when you are dealing with both of them, and society is treating you this way, it not only combines in such a way that you would have the same amount of marginalization or the same effect if you directly combine both of those, sometimes those opinions in society intersect to not only, from different methods of marginalization, but not only are you either in society thinks of you as a moral failure or a someone who is younger or or treated as younger or, as you put it, stupid, I hate using that word, but not only do you have these two things that society thinks of you, you combine them. And that also means that we don't, we as society, we in in the medical profession, anyone does don't really understand how the intersection of those two happens and what that affects. So it limits our access to services. It also limits our access to services in, in you know, Pretty practical ways, if you take the overstimulation of autism, you can't go out of the house or you take the and you take the isolation of depression, that will combine oh, yeah.
0: mm-hmm.
1: to form
0: <laughs> you, you end with an even bigger weight.
1: Yes, to I form think. something that quite honestly yeah. can end up fatal, can end up deadly. And I'm sure that in with that, we kind of have to transition into what exactly happens when those services that understand both disorders and the combination between them and what exactly that contributes to are not provided. We've seen it multiple times. Yeah. That affects disabled people's lives, developmentally disabled individuals' lives in massive ways. Mm-hmm. And um, massive, massive casualties, whether that's whether whether that's injury or consequences. In yeah. Cases.
0: Speaking about um autism in particular, one of the one of the one of the consequences when you have the, a developmental disability and a mental illness, particu- particularly autism, is that you end up in the emergency department of your local hospital a lot in a yes. mental health crisis. Why? Because there aren't the resources available in, in the community. This is true in Syracuse. This is true all over the nation. There aren't the resources to provide the appropriate mental health support and the, the, the appropriate developmental disability support to people who have both. Now, the fact that you can have both clearly indicates that they are different things. Particularly with the, the issue with, with mental illness and disability, particularly developmental disability, that makes it that much more likely to, for you to have an encounter with law enforcement. And it makes it that much more likely that you will die as a result of that encounter which means that we need to do a better job of providing the resources for people with mental illnesses and for people with developmental disabilities. We can't have the most vulnerable people in our communities dying for no other reason than we just didn't think they were worth the, the time or the resources.
1: And we see this in medicine as well. We We see this with allocation of resources towards abled individuals with the ventilator shortage in the beginning of the pandemic. Mm, yeah. There were in, disabled individuals that we that would have been triaged higher than abled individuals, but were triaged lower and not provided ventilators and other treatment that would have saved their lives or pre- prevented massive morbidity mm. that, we're not given because these people are thought of as less than, and the able people who are not in as much danger as these developmentally disabled people, patients are, were thought of as worth above what the developmentally disabled individuals are. We see this in education that are accommodations that would help us be able to go through school in a similar manner with a similar, not ease, because school isn't easy, but with a similar ability to even so much as do our work, are thought of as not worth it, and the money is spent on abled individuals Yeah, This is seen all over society, and it only increases when you combine autism or rather developmental disability and mental illness. The
0: the resources are seen as either not worth it or too cumbersome, they cost too much money, take too much time those kinds of things. Now, imagine that you are going about your daily life, just trying to do what you need to do. And someone comes along and says, oh no, it's too cumbersome for us to give you a job. So poop, you're gone. Or, oh no, it's too cumbersome to to make a test that you can actually take so that you can demonstrate what you know. So we're not gonna give it to you. Oh, look, you failed.
1: This and I think most people, people, know, people know this, but those. Are, I think most people know this, but those are things that actually happen.
0: Yes, those are things that actually happen. They are things that are actually happening now. Yep. <laughs> that Jeremy, you, you're you're quiet over there. So I, I want you to chime in on the implications of this this overlap, the the co-occurring of developmental disability and mental illness.
2: So I think Liza was kind of focusing on the social side of it, how people see you, how they treat you, how they think of you. But the conditions themselves have an underlying element to them, Mm -hmm. that when you have them together, even apart from how you're socially treated, it can create difficulties. This This is one of the problems with the social model of disability. The social model of disability wants to reduce disability to how society treats you, rather than recognizing that there's an underlying condition. I mean, they sort of give that lip service, and they'll call that the impairment, and then the disability is how society treats you, but I, I think the whole, the whole thrust of it is to try to get away from recognizing that there's something about the condition itself that can make life a little bit more difficult for you, or in some cases, a lot more difficult for
1: you. Well, in the case of autism and an so, anxiety disorder, I, 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 as an example of what you're saying, both increase levels both both trigger the fight or flight response uh, as we've seen in brain studies things like that with autism and as does anxiety in and of itself and that is going to have effects on your body because of the release of cortisol so it's it i completely agree with you that there are massive implications when the two happen together, not just in social, but in, as an example of what you're saying.
2: Continue. So uh, another case would be uh, if you have some kind of developmental disability that makes uh, speech or communication more difficult. Now, sure, we should try to accommodate that. We should try to bring out communication as much as we can. That That is a social side to it. And when we don't do that, that makes it worse. But nevertheless, if you can't, Get the communication out. You can't get it out sometimes, no matter how hard people help you, right? What if that's combined with uh, an inner condition of mental anxiety or depression or something like that? But you can't communicate about it. You can't engage in the one method that our society has of dealing with that, which is to talk about it, right? Yeah, people who people who do therapy to try to help people through their mental just mental illnesses of various sorts do it by talking mm-hmm. right and there isn't an alternative to that really you need to communicate to be able to to be able to reflect on what's going on within yourself be able to 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 talk to people about that mm-hmm. to to acknowledge it to make steps to think on a higher Level. I mean, by higher, I mean, second order level, you're thinking about yourself, making choices about how you want to be different and things like that. And you can't do that without that level of communication. So there's a there's a difficulty just in having those two conditions together that we don't we don't. It, it doesn't matter how much we try to accommodate. We aren't accommodating enough, that's for sure. Yeah. But it doesn't even yeah, matter if we, it doesn't even matter how if we, if we accommodated as much as we possibly could, you'd still have issues yes. with this. Yes. You still would. So
0: not as many, but
2: not as many, yes. but you still would. And, and in some conditions, when you've got a, a communication disorder, that communication disorder is going to make it that much harder to treat the mental condition. Yeah. That's a that's, that's, that's a, alongside the, the developmental mm-hmm. issue.
0: And I think the problem that we, are, that we are seeing, the problem that we encountered uh, with our family, Jeremy, is that people aren't even trying. <laughs> there, there's such a shortage of, of services, a shortage of, of qualified professionals, a shortage of even support and training for families to try to figure it out that people, you know, suffering is made a heck of a lot worse because people aren't even trying to address it. Yes, it is extremely difficult to tr- to help someone who doesn't utilize verbal, verbal communication to communicate about their internal state and their emotions and their mental state, but people aren't even trying. Well, there are a lot of people who are suffering in, in silence because no one's trying to get to them. No one's trying to find a way for them to be able to express themselves either with with um, assistive communication technology or through art, or movement or, or whatever it is people aren't trying and so we're having people go with their mental health issues not addressed that's Yeah, that's a problem. Mm -hmm. And this is why we keep talking about mental health (laughs) on this podcast, because we need people to know that, hey, you have to at least try.
1: And this gets into the whole issue of people not talking to developmentally disabled kids who are nonverbal. I've seen it specifically more with autistic kids, but it applies regardless that they slash me, I was in that case Sometimes, but not much. Uh, who are nonverbal kids? Who are nonverbal? They're not worth talking to. Some people think because they're not going to say anything back. They're not going to respond, and that is basically the belief that we're confronting here. Mm-hmm. That we need to find a way to get people to understand. Hey, you know, maybe they're, they're not going to talk via speech, but they will and can communicate with you, yes. and they want to.
0: Yes.
3: Uh, I have some thoughts and then with regards to a lot of this, it's important to have psychologists in schools to help with this whole process.
0: Mm. Yes. Yes.
3: As I benefited because if I didn't had my support, mom and dad at home, because otherwise I would have gone crazy. I mean, especially when you have when you're coming from to a new environment of how do you navigate this public Mm -hmm. education system when you're catered and pretty much taken care of and it's not you're not interacting competitively with people it's just making the milestones because a lot of that early period was just making the milestones to try to learn something and then when you're in a integrated classroom it's it's a lot different Mm -hmm. and then also you have to have discernment because when I was looking at some of the stuff on DSMs, other different variables, you need the discernment, especially as to what categories people are placed in, especially at birth, because my or medical people had the wrong view of me, just put me away, but my mom and dad saw otherwise. So mm-hmm. you have to have those two things, the discernment and also the services that you can relate to these. And the training, you also need that training finally, of educators now it's better now they have podcasts they have DVDs they have webinars so it's much better these days than it was back in the 1960s or 70s but still we have a long ways to go because we have these issues though
0: yeah and now we have the ADA and the IDEA yeah which say no 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 you have to let disabled people participate in society that's I mean, just, you got to do it <laughs> but
1: before that they were just the intention of the law that would then become IDEA is they define the congressional intent as, yeah, get the kids into school, but we don't care what happens to them when they're within, once they're within those four walls.
3: Mm.
0: We
1: don't care if they get a proper education. We don't care how they're treated once they're in that, those four walls. Hey, at least they're in there. And that is, I think, the kind of tokenism and performativity that a lot of services end up as. And and people end up thinking that that's okay when it's not doing anything to help us, but it's to put the people who are supposedly concerned with us Hmm. or society itself, at ease without without doing anything to to substant- substantively rather yeah. help us.
0: Yes. And what you just mentioned, Liza, is exactly why I chose as as the values of Sanchia.org as service, compassion, and integrity. Because so many times what people with disabilities receive is lip service rather than actual service that meets their needs. And oftentimes it is lacking in a recognition of their humanity and lacking in compassion. And oftentimes people are just downright shady because they think, oh, this person can't say anything, so I can get away with doing whatever, whatever I want. Whatever
1: I want. Yep.
0: Because so disabled people are, are at such greater risk for abuse. That's why I, I wanted to 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 put it out there to make sure that people understand we're about providing actual meaning, meaningful service meaningful to the, pe- the people receiving the service. We're about doing it with compassion and recognizing their humanity. And we're about doing it with integrity. We're not trying to hide anything, get over on anybody. We make a mistake, we say, yep, uh-huh, we made a mistake. Here's the lesson we learned from it. And keep it moving.
1: And I think when we talk about bringing it back to the mental health issue, that's another consequence of the two overlapping. Two, two communities that are vulnerable to abuse on their own because we are often thought of as discredited, whether we are in the mental disorder, mental illness community, or whether we're in the developmentally disabled community. Those two populations are often thought of as their stories being not credible, not worth believing, because supposedly our perceptions are just so different And that's not the case, but because the stories, what we say happened are often so viewed as so Mm -hmm. incredible by society, not incredible, viewed as not not credible by society, that puts people in those groups, even if they're just in one of them at a much higher risk of abuse. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and if you're in both of them, that's going to skyrocket, especially if you're in any more other marginalized communities. If you're mm-hmm. a woman of color, if you're a woman, if you're of
0: a minority or, ethnic group or religious mm-hmm. group. Now, Jeremy had to step out because computer issues, but uh, we are we are out of time for today. So I want to thank you all for being part of this conversation. I want to thank our audience for joining in on this conversation. And I think our conclusion is that while there may be some similarities between mental illness and developmental disability, they are in fact two distinct things that are often overlooked, under-supported in our society. And people can experience both a mental illness and a developmental disability, which makes their lives that much harder because there still is a clear misunderstanding of both of those things. There's still a lot of stigma attached to both of those things. So again, I wanna thank you everyone for joining us. I am the Idea Dynamo, Samantha Pierce. You're listening to the Life Fantastic Podcast here on straight independent radio. We're sponsored by NeurodiversityConsulting.org and St. Check us out on the web to find out about all the great things we do with people with disabilities. And we will see you next time.